Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Teach Your Children, recorded by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and written by our guest, Graham Nash. Graham Nash began his career with The Hollies, co-writing the top five singles Stop, 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 On a Carousel, and Carrie Ann, as well as pinning the critically acclaimed King Midas in Reverse. After leaving the group, he joined forces with David Crosby of The Birds and Stephen Stills of Buffalo Springfield to assemble one of music's first supergroups, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. As a trio and as a quartet with Neil Young, CSN became one of the most popular groups of the 1970s. As a songwriter, Nash contributed such classics to the group as Marrakesh Express, Lady of the Island, Teach Your Children, Our House, and the top ten hits Just a Song Before I Go and Wasted on the Way. As a solo artist, he penned classics such as Better Days, Chicago, and Prison Song. Nash is a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as both a member of the Hollies and CSN. Additionally, he was appointed an Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. While continually building his musical legacy, Graham is also a renowned photographer and visual artist whose work has been shown in galleries and museums worldwide. His latest project and his seventh studio album as a solo artist is entitled Now. Part One Pearl Snap, Pearl Snap If your recording sounds like crap, call them <laughs> what do you think? I, I'm working on a jingle. Uh, I think your jingle needs to go to Pearl Snap. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't rewrite the song, man. They're just going to record it. Is it ready? Is it ready for them and what they're going to do? They're going to make it sound shiny and perfect and ready for the radio. So tell me, is the song ready? I mean, honestly, Pearl Snap can make anything sound amazing. So uh, I might suggest working on the song a little bit more. Uh, right. Then send it to them, and then they're going to have a great... I don't have it finished, but I think I have the germ of an idea. <laughs> <laughs> you do. I, I, I felt those germs. <laughs> um, you know, I'm hoping that anyone who's listening out there is already writing better songs than what I just tried to do right there. Um, almost it, certainly. Yeah, almost certainly you can do something better than my Pearl Snap jingle. Although I will tell you, I'm going to keep working on it. And, and I think we should come up with a Pearl Snap jingle here at Songcraft. But if you are writing songs that are even marginally better than what I just spat out, then you deserve the opportunity to have a great recording of that song. You deserve to have it played and presented in such a way that it can be pitched, that it can be put on a record, that it, you can be proud of what you've done. Justin, our good friend, and his team at Pearl Snap Studios can take your song and turn it into an incredible demo. They can take your set of 12 songs and turn it into an incredible record. Uh, whatever it is that you need done, you need to talk to Justin. They're super friendly. They're super open to talking with you about what your needs are. If you tell them that Songcraft sent you, they're even going to give you a discount, assuming that you're a first-timer. You can't just keep double-dipping right. on that discount over and over yeah, and over. Who would you do that? And, and, and we only say that because when people work with Pearl Snap once, they tend to come back they do. Uh, because they're great. So check out PearlSnapStudios.com. Talk to Justin. Let him know what you need. Again, that's PearlSnapStudios.com. Pearl Snap, Pearl Snap. I yeah, think that's good. enough. Yeah. That's enough. Paul, we don't talk about politics on this podcast. N so not nearly enough. Not nearly yeah. enough. And we should because it brings people together. <laughs> um, but... I'm going to bring up something right now that is is not about politics, okay. um, but it does involve presidents. And that's political. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, but I think back to being a kid um, in school and seeing these paintings of presidents from the past. Right. And the thing that I kind of took away from that as a kid was like, look how old these dudes are. Right. You know, they just seemed like old dudes. And. <laughs> I was recently surprised to find out that there have only ever been two presidents who began their presidency in their 70s. Wow. I mean, the fact that a lot of these guys have like white wigs on probably <laughs> contributed to a yeah. lot of the perception. Yeah, that was the whole vibe back then. Uh, they yeah. couldn't copyright that vibe. but That was their whole <laughs> vibe uh, back in back right. in the day. Um, so the only two presidents who have ever begun their presidency in their 70s are our last two presidents, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Ronald Reagan didn't? Ronald Reagan was 69 years, 349 days old when he took 
the oath of office. So he was wow. pretty darn close, but yeah. technically not in his 70s. We've only had two presidents who were in their 70s. Jeez, and I re- people talked about him like he was oh. just a bag of dust. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and he was quite a bit older. I mean, most presidents, uh, I mean, it, it's crazy. Like Theodore Roosevelt was 42. When wow. he when he uh, took office the first time, and Ulysses Grant was forty six, like he was already a, a war hero. Uh, it seemed grizzled, you know. Yeah, totally. Uh, so th- that that kind of what can I say mind. that forty two in the eighteen sixties was an older forty two <laughs> than what we're dealing with now. I think <laughs> right. I, yeah, he had never been to an infrared sauna. I, I'm guessing. <laughs> um, but the reason that I bring this up is because. Uh, as we seem to be apt to do in recent American history, we like to just have these repeats of, uh, <laughs> of elections. Right. And so who knows what's going to happen between now and the next election. But we know that former President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden have both announced uh, their candidacy for president in this the next sequel. Election. Yeah, the sequel. <laughs> and we can assume, you know, anything could happen, but it's likely that those will be the two guys going head to head once again. Um, and, you know, what's interesting to me is I think on the 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 Trump side of things, they've tried to make an issue of Biden's age, yeah. um, <laughs> which is a little bit of a deflection when you go, OK, these are the two <laughs> oldest presidents. Though. It's right. not like Trump is 41. It's not you know? Biden against Pete Davidson. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So yeah. it. If Trump becomes president again, then he'll be 78 when he's he's sworn in. And if Biden is reelected, he'll be 82 when he's sworn in. So the combined ages of these candidates at that point <laughs> is 160. That's the combined ages. So it kind of got me thinking, uh, are there rock stars yeah. who are older than these two dudes? Because which job actually takes more you know, physical strength? Which... Do you, you think to be Mick Jagger? Yeah, and to run back and forth across stage every night, and to and to travel as much as he does, right? You know, compared to having to walk into the Situation Room possibly <laughs> in the middle of the night and and make a right. a big decision. Well, and, you know, and Mick Jagger is a full seven months younger than Joe Biden, so he's a spring chicken. Right, um, but there 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 are rock stars uh, who are older than both Donald Trump. And Joe Biden. And I kind of found it surprising. Now, some of them, maybe not super surprising, like Brian Wilson is older than both those guys. You know, Brian, I think, is probably at the point in his life where we might not say that, like, okay, we want to give him the nuclear codes. Think about at this point how bored he is driving up and down the same old strip. (laughs) (laughs) He was already bored at like 25. (laughs) It's a lot of years. Yeah. And he he still gets around. (laughs) Um. But uh, some of the people who are older than both Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Paul McCartney. Yeah, he's eighty. Yeah, and yeah. and when and when McCartney's career started, Kennedy was president or was about to become president. Yeah, and all in his forties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Kennedy became president when he was forty-three. Wow. Uh, so Kennedy was like half the age that McCartney is now. Jeez. Uh, and and if you've seen Paul McCartney recently, he he just kind of like he looks like he's more flexible than I am. <laughs> right. He can certainly play a longer show than I can. Yeah. I don't see him stop and drink water or anything. Well, and he's is he a vegan or vegetarian or? Uh, vegetarian yeah, he's one least, of those right? things. He's also British, so he can't be president. I was just wondering maybe if he could <laughs> because I would love that. But because uh, because Paul's whole thing is we can work it out, and I think that he'd be a great president. But um, um so Bob Dylan. Yeah. He's he's older than than Trump and Biden. Uh, this one surprised me. George Clinton. Interesting. And I think maybe it's the multicolored dreadlocks that, that yeah. you know, makes him seem a little younger. Well, in America, you know, they said recently they weren't ready for a Clinton presidency again. So, I mean, I, I don't think that. <laughs> so he should probably not run. But he could be in parliament. <laughs> Even though he's not British. Yeah, we're, we're doing great. Here <laughs> oh, this is good stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, Ringo Starr. Uh, yeah. Paul Simon, but a lot of these rock stars, you know, wow. and, and yes, we do view these rock stars as as getting older. These are elder statesmen and elder stateswomen of of rock music. But uh, you know, we were just talking recently about seeing Willie Nelson's 90th birthday yeah, celebration. Right? I mean, Willie's got a decade 
on these guys incredible and still out there performing uh you know again do i want willie to have the nuclear codes i i don't know <laughs> but uh it, it's pretty wild when you think about um some of these rock stars and the stamina that they have to go do what they do and they're out on the road and you know it's it, totally it, it, it's kind of mind-boggling well and one of the things you know we talked about the powdered wig and and how that contributes to the perception of age right if, if guys were wearing powdered wigs now i think we right. consider them all quite old you know bruce springsteen is 73 so again a spring chicken there right um but a I Springsteen think, chicken. I think wardrobe has a lot to do with it. I'm thinking about Springsteen now. Like, imagine you took Springsteen and Biden and you just traded clothes <laughs> on the two guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce is kind of just going to walk out in this this blue suit. Right. <laughs> then I'm going to go put the jeans <laughs> and the kind of like faded mechanic looking T-shirt on Joe Biden. Right. Is that going to make Biden look older or younger? Ah, that's a good question. I think he's going to look like he's getting ready to cut the yard. You know, yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy <laughs> down the street who spends spends most of the time working on the yeah. yard. The you know? color of the sneakers is going to have a lot to do with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I it's it really is interesting to think about uh, about what it takes to do these jobs. And and honestly, it, for me, I, I don't think that I'm going to have the stamina to either run around a stage or conduct the business of an entire nation uh, once I pass. You know. 80 or so i'd like to I'd think, say 60 <laughs> looking at me yeah <laughs> looking at me and how i eat and how i function um <laughs> you know it, it is amazing looking at anyone who has that level of stamina at that age yeah at, at either one of those jobs well, you mentioned bruce springsteen a minute ago which got me thinking uh i was at the country music hall of fame recently Bragger. and they've got an ex <laughs> they've got an exhibit <laughs> they weren't inducting me i was just visiting yeah. uh they've got Bragger. an exhibit called uh called western edge and it's about kind of the rise of country rock in L.A. back in the you know late 60s, early 70s. So like Flying Burrito Brothers and what kind of led to the Eagles and all that. Um, and so they've got a, an exhibit there um, about uh, Buffalo Springfield. OK. And, you know, Stephen Stills, Neil Young. We talked recently about seeing them play. Uh, and and they've got this uh, exhibit up and, and I'm looking at it. And I hear some people walking up behind me who are of that era from mm -hmm. they would have potentially, you know, been listening to this on the radio when it was new. And I hear the man go, man, I love Buffalo Springsteen. <laughs> I thought, well, even the fans like don't know where they are or, what, or what's going on. Uh, <laughs> so I had to laugh at that. But uh, speaking of Stephen Stills and Neil Young, you think of them as being part of Buffalo Springfield, but yeah. even more so their partnership with David Crosby and Graham Nash and some of the legendary music yeah. that those guys made. And Graham Nash, our guest on today's episode, older than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Wow. Dude's out there making new records. He's on the road. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty wild. And from talking to him has a, a pretty laser like memory in terms of like how the songs came to be and yeah. and where he was when this happened and that happened um yeah this this was a fun trip uh, talking to a guy like graham whose music has been such a formative part of of our lives and so many other people uh, it's just you got to pinch yourself every now and then yeah it, it it's wild when we start hearing these stories about these songs that we just take for granted yeah. and you know direct from these men and women who wrote them and you just go wow a real person sat down and made up that song one <laughs> totally. day that we just hear, uh, you know, all over the place in stores, on the radio and movies. And it's like, wow, that was that just came out of their brain one day, which is remarkable. Um, unfortunately, uh, I don't want to disappoint the listeners, but Graham Nash, also British. So can't, he can't be, be president. Be president. Yeah. yeah. Part two. Graham, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you very much. How are you? Oh, we're doing great. It's it's great to speak to you. Um, you've got your first new studio album in seven years which is called now and you've said that that this record is perhaps the most personal that you have made and you know you have made a lot of records over the years and a lot of configurations i'm curious what is it about this one for you that feels particularly uh close to you the opening line of the album is i used to think that i could never love again Hmm. And then the rest of the album follows. So wow. you can see from that opening line how personal it's going to get. So would you call that joyously personal? Yes. 
<laughs> and of course, there are some moments on the record that that aren't quite as joyous when when you take on some things that are going on in our culture, uh, which has always been something that you've been doing. I, th- I think it's the duty of every songwriter and every artist, really, to uh, no matter what your genre is. I think it's our duty to reflect what's going on around us at the time. Yeah. We have to talk about what's going on in politically and environmentally, as well as personally. Do you think it's the the responsibility of, of the songwriter? Um, I mean, I know that you, for yourself personally, you write about your personal life and you write about the world around you. Do you think, generally speaking, it's the responsibility of the songwriter to kind of report uh, and, and comment on what's happening in culture? Absolutely. It, it, yeah, it's part of our duty as, as as communicators is to communicate what's going on around us right now. Yeah. And I've actually often been asking myself the question, where are the artists in, in this day and age? Because sometimes it seems like the, the younger generation, if I can just point the finger there, um, it doesn't seem to be as concerned with, you know, like, I do feel like we're living in a burning building. And not everyone seems to be noticing it and expressing it that, you know, the radio just marches on. Um, do you feel like you've noticed that as well, that, that you know, folks that, that sort of came up at the same time you came up are looking around saying, hey, we've got to do something, we've got to say something. But the younger generation maybe just seems like they're just, just sort of moving along. God bless them. <laughs> I, can, I can only do what I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, one of the tracks uh, on the, the new record, Buddy's Back, is uh, an homage and, and celebration of uh, Buddy Holly. And that, of course, is where uh, your band, the Hollies, got their name. And, and in fact, on this song, uh, Holly's co-founder, Alan Clark, is, is singing harmony vocals. So it's a, it's a bit of a uh, full circle <laughs> in a way for you. Um, it, you're, you're going back to, to where you started and, and kind of completing that circle in, in a very cool way. Buddy Holly was who we love Right from the heart His music is still around that very beginning for you when you first realized that hey this music thing this this might be something I could actually do with my life I think that came when you would take an acoustic guitar and play a couple of Buddy Holly songs and and uh, every lady in the in the party would would be more interested in you <laughs> it basically starts there you know right. uh, the Hollies of course did have a great love for Buddy Holly um, we managed a few years ago to be able to sing with with Buddy. Uh, he he cut a uh, he cut an acoustic track of of Peggy Sue got married uh, right here in 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 Manhattan. Wow! And and we were able to take that two track acoustic with one voice uh, that Buddy had produced, and we uh, we edited it and put all our voices on with him. So. When I sing about we brought him with us in the past, uh, that's the reference. You know, you mentioned that feeling of, of, you know, playing cover songs in front of a bunch of girls and seeing the reaction. And, and a lot of us have, have known that feeling. It's something different then, though, to move on to creating your own songs and, and understanding you had the ability to do that. Even at the beginning of the Holly's career, you know, your early top 10 singles were generally written by others. And you kind of encouraged, hey, let, let's move forward and write our own stuff. Right. Um, was that sort of a daunting proposition for you? Or did you already know, I, th- I think I can do this as well as these songs that we're, that we're putting out? We realized that with every A side of a single, there was a B side. Hmm. And it made just as much money as the A side. Huh, right. And so we decided that because, you know, we, we would try and find our way to a little of that money. Yeah. And so we decided that we would write B-sides and we we uh, we recorded other people's songs until we were strong enough in our own songwriting art to be able to do the A-sides ourselves. The first one, I believe, uh, of the Hollies uh, was called We're Through. Hmm. 
And I think probably the first the first big hit that you guys had as writers was Stop 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 in 1966. And right. you know, there's a there's a lyric in that song that says like a snake her body fascinates me. I can't look away now. Uh which to me feels like kind of viscerally sensual for that era, maybe pushing the envelope a little bit. And even musically, you're pulling in a little bit of of world music uh, influences. Uh-huh. It seems like from the very beginning, you had um, sort of an instinct to, to to push the boundaries a little bit. Right. Now she dancing, going through the movement, swaying to and fro. Body moving, bringing back a memory, thoughts of long ago. Blood is rushing, temperature is rising, sweating from my brow. Like a snake, her body fascinates me, I can't look away now. Stop, stop, stop all the dancing, give me time to breathe. Stop, stop, stop all the dancing, all I have to leave. Um, you know, when the Everly Brothers recorded their Two Yanks in England album in 1966, the band on the album was basically the Hollies, and eight of the 12 songs in that record are composed by L. Ransford, which is basically a pseudonym that, that you guys used together. One of the things we like to do here on the podcast is either put rumors to rest or breathe new life into them if possible. And one <laughs> rumor that I had seen was that uh, Elton John and Jimmy Page are rumored to have played on that album. Can we either breathe life into that rumor or put it to rest? They, they did play on that album. Uh, Reggie Dwight, of course, became Elton John and, and Jimmy Page, and John Paul Jones were on the album too. Oh, wow. Uh, and they were session musicians then. You could, you know, sessions was about 10 pounds, something like that, I remember. And yeah. you could actually employ all these incredible musicians for reasonably cheap and, uh, they they want they were all Everly Brothers fans, of course, um, yeah. and uh, and were happy to play on the album. Yeah. But yes, it was absolutely correct. Reggie Dwight, who became Elton John, Jimmy Page, and John Paul Jones. Wow! Wow! Now I I read from an interview some years back. You talked about um, hearing the Everly Brothers sing "Bye Bye Love" was kind of a pivotal thing for you as a kid that was particularly inspirational and then you know here you are just a few short years later in the studio with the Everly Brothers and they are uh, performing songs that you have written that had to be pretty mind-bending it was insanely mind-blowing I mean we had no idea I mean uh, the Hollies were playing uh, a show at the London Palladium Pete Seeger was the headliner and the Hollies were, were, were backing were, were also on the show and uh, at soundcheck, the phone rang, and uh, Rod Shields, our our tour manager, answered the phone. He goes, yeah? Uh-huh. Yeah, he's right here. Yeah, okay, hold on. And he hands me the phone. And I go, who is it? He goes, <laughs> well, he says it's Phil Everly. I said, come on, Rod, that's not, don't fool me. That's not nice. Come on. <laughs> he said, it's Phil Everly. So I pick up the phone. I go, Hello? He goes, hey, Graham, how are you doing? It's Phil Everly. And, of course, I recognized his voice immediately. And he wanted to know if the Hollies had any songs because uh, uh, him and Don were in, ta- were in London to, uh, to do a, an album called Two Yanks in England. And, of course, you know, because we had been writing many songs, we had, we had a lot. So we went down to their hotel. I think it was the Ritz Hotel in London. And, um, and we sang them the, the songs that we thought that they might like. And they chose seven or eight of them. Wow. wow. And that that was in, that was insane, because, as you said, uh, only a couple of years later, uh, uh, since since we first met the Everly Brothers on the steps of the Midland Hotel in Manchester. <laughs> wow. You know, what's amazing. We, we just recently had a conversation with Kevin Cronin, the lead singer and, and main songwriter in Ario Speedwagon, who mentioned you in much these similar terms as as an influence in kind of a guiding light creatively for him. Uh, do, do these moments with you know people like the Everly Brothers pop back into your head sometimes when you are encountering you know musicians who look at you and say we're in awe of you and, and you got us started and all those type of things? Yeah, but they have to know that we're all just a link in the chain, uh, this long musical chain that stretches all the way from somebody banging on a log in a cave <laughs> to Lady Gaga. <laughs> you know, and we're all we're all just a link in this fantastic chain, and we all learn from each other's. We all stand on each other's shoulders. Uh, you know, uh, and, and yes, he's he's absolutely right, and and that's very nice of Kevin to say that. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, I, I, I mentioned the uh, idea that stop, stop, stop kind of pushed the boundaries a little bit. And, and the Hollies went on to have quite a few more successful original, you know, singles that you guys wrote. Um, songs like On a Carousel and, and Carrie Ann. And, you know, Carrie Ann seems to have, you know, some like Beach Boys influence, but it also has this Caribbean kind of vibe with the steel drums, even though it's very very much still a pop song and it fits the the proper mold of a pop song it's it brings in some of these influences but that you know impulse of yours really ramped up uh not long after that with king midas in reverse and that's a song that i see as kind of a turning point and i think you probably do too and in terms of your songwriting it's it's more adventurous it's it's a little more serious it's very much got that, you know, poppy chorus, but it's also got those strings and, and it's it's more adventurous. I wish someone would find me and help me gain control before I lose my The Hollies were playing a show in uh, Split. I believe it's in Yugoslavia. Um, and I wrote uh, King Midas in, in reverse. Um, and it was a very personal song, uh, I, I must admit it. And, and But the Hollies made a really a really good record of it. I, th I thought it was a, a great record. But what happened is that, that it, it only got into the lower top 30 instead of doing the normal things with Holly singles going up into the top five, top 10, you know? Right. And so they, they, they started to not trust me. They, uh, they didn't like not having a, a, a big hit, but I, I personally thought it was a great record. Well, in a way, you know, it seems that you may have been sort of seeing the future in terms of what pop music was about to do, because being able to sort of incorporate that kind of complexity into your writing while still, you know, there's still a melodic sensibility in, in the midst of it. Did that remain something that was, you know, even as you entered the next phase of your career with Crosby, Stills and Nash, were there moments when you felt torn between, hey, this simplicity we know will work on radio, but I believe this complexity will actually work on radio if we've got enough melody and enough harmony and, and all those things that, you know, those that the bit of ear candy that people need. Yeah. Uh, CSN. What an interesting uh, group that was. Um, <laughs> and. I, 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 you know, it was it was Crosby that actually came uh, to the last show of the Hollies ever did in the, in the strangely enough in the London Palladium again. Uh, it was a benefit to uh, to help her kids, um, and uh, he, he said, you know, these these songs you've got, these are good songs. I don't I don't know what's wrong with the rest of the Hollies in not trusting you, but these are good songs because I played him. Marrakesh Express, you know, um, and and so in a way, David saved my life, you know, because the worst thing that you can do to a songwriter is give him self-doubt. Mm. Uh, and uh, Crosby never did. All he did was encourage me to uh, to keep writing the way I was writing. But I must tell you that uh, when I did move to America and started making music with David and Stephen and I was living, of course, with Joni. And then, of course, Neil, uh, I began to realize that if I put better words to the melodies that I'd learned to write while I was in the Hollies, that I would have better songs. And that's exactly what happened, I hope. Wow. Uh, well, you mentioned uh, Marrakesh Express, which is, you know, this very visual song uh, about a, a train ride that you had taken and... Um, <laughs> Reminded me of a time actually that I was in Ukraine and I went exploring on the train and ran into some goats. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> same old story. <laughs> I, I kind of resonated with your uh, experience, um, but uh, that that was Crosby, Stills and Nash's first single. But I understand, you know, Paul and I are both. Uh, we we live in Los Angeles now, but we're we're both originally from Nashville, and I understand that that you had occasion to uh, play that song kind of on the spot for Johnny Cash. Uh, yeah, um, I was with Joni and she was doing the Johnny Cash TV show. 
which was a national TV show, of course. The night, uh, uh, the, the night of the show, um, we, we were all having dinner at, 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 Johnny, at, uh, at Johnny's house. And um, he kind of tapped a glass with a spoon in, in the middle of dinner. And he said, OK, here at the Cash household, uh, we have a, a kind of a rule. And that is, you know, you kind of sing for your supper. And so if anybody would like to get up and do a song, fantastic. Hmm. Nobody moved. <laughs> One of the reasons being Bob Dylan was sitting right there with Sarah on the stairs and it was his first outing since his motorcycle accident. Wow. And so because nobody moved, I, of course, being English, wanted to just fill in this vacuum. And I, nobody knew who I was. They may have thought I was just some lump of meat on, on Joni's arm, you know, <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, I didn't, nobody knew who I was. So I, I said, I'll get up. And I kind of broke the ice a second and I, I played the song and uh, I think I did a pretty decent job of it and uh, got to the end of it all on a board and then ended the song and I stood up and I walked right into a standing lamp which crashed to the <laughs> ground. <laughs> and, um, and that was the opening of that night of music that uh, ended up uh, uh, a couple, you know, two o'clock in the morning. Wow. I was going to ask, you know, you know, with all the thousands and thousands of people you played in front of, you know, what's more nerve wracking playing in a hotel lobby in front of the Everly Brothers or, you know, in front of Johnny Cash at a dinner party. But I think you might have just answered my question by running into that lamp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a true story. You know, that the the, uh, the Hollies actually tried to cut Marrakesh Express. And somewhere in the in the bowels of EMI in the tape vault is a is a version of the Hollies doing Marrakesh Express, wow. but to me it always needed the urgency of a train going you know the 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 power and of a steam train, and that's what uh, Stephen Stills brought to the front when he overdubbed those uh, guitars up there. That yeah. was brilliant of Stephen. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, there is a version of of the Hollies doing Marrakesh Express, and it can frankly, it kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I guess it's good that wasn't the version that got out there. That's right. Would you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express? Would you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express? They're taking me to Marrakesh. All on board the train. All on board. Saving all my money just to take you there I smell the garden in your hair Take the train to Casablanca going south so in my uh, in in my normal life, when I'm not uh, doing podcasts, uh, I'm a book publisher, and I just did a uh, a book, um, a bird's book, actually, with David and and Chris Hillman and Roger McGuinn, and got to know David pretty well over the last couple years uh, before he passed, and um, you know, always enjoyed talking about music with him because. Uh, he was as excited and passionate about music, you know, at the end of his life, probably as he was, you know, when he was a teenager, you mentioned, um, you know, Stephen Stills. And one of the things that, that David always said about Stephen, he goes, man, that guy could swing. He's like, he could take an acoustic guitar and he could swing. And it's just something about the feel, you know, that, that Stephen, uh, brought to songs and, you know, I've I've seen in interviews you talk about a song like um, "Teach Your Children," which I understand like you obviously wrote that song, but it, Stephen kind of gave it a, a different feel. Talk a bit about how that happened. Well, that's no doubt that Stephen Stills uh, turned uh, uh, "Teach Your Children" into a hit. I played Stephen the song. Uh, I got to the end. He looked at me and he said, "That's a decent song, Graham. Don't ever play it like that again." <laughs> which was kind of shocking and i said really he goes yeah let me show you how this should go and he put that incredible right hand you know many string you know picking thing that Stephen is so famous for right. and he turned it into a hit and so 
we had done the, the track. It was pretty simple. It was a couple of uh, acoustic guitars and uh, and uh, a bass and uh, uh, Dallas Taylor on tambourine. And um, we got to the, the solo part and Stephen said, you know, I've, I've done a lot of solos on these records. You know, is there anything else we can do? And Crosby said, wait a second. Uh, I heard that Garcia is in the next studio and he's been he's been uh, learning to play the pedal steel. Maybe he could put pedal steel on it. So I said, well, let's make a rough two track, take it to the studio next door. And if, if, if Jerry likes it, let's rock. So he took it to the the um, uh, uh, Wally Hyder studio next door to us, and um, Jerry liked it. He put his steel guitar, pedal steel guitar, and he turned it into even more of a hit. Wow. Yeah. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by and feed. Them on your dreams The one they fix The one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh And know they You know, you mentioned before, you know, sort of a new intentionality in terms of the types of words that you were marrying to your melodies. Um, and I look at a song like Our House, and, and your relationship with, with Joni had been uh, an inspiration to you, you know, songs like Lady of the Island and things like that. But this, this song was kind of about your life and your home. And it's oftentimes when songwriters want to approach something like that that means a lot to them, they, they, what are the biggest terms I can use? How can I turn this into something flowery? But you come in with, I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Just such concrete language about your day-to-day -day life. Um, because it because it happened to me that morning. Wow. Hmm. I had taken I had taken Joni to breakfast at a arts deli on Ventura Boulevard in Los Angeles. Uh, we'd finished, and it was it was at like the tail end of winter. It was a real shitty day. It was cold and miserable and raining, kind of foggy, awful. We were leaving the breakfast and uh, going towards Joan's car where she parked it. And we passed an antique store and we we're looking in the window and Joni saw a vase that she wanted. And it was uh, in the very back of the window, about 10 inches high. It had some hand-painted flowers around the edge. And uh, it was reasonably priced, so she bought it. So we then drive the car in the shitty weather back to the house in Laurel Canyon. And I opened the front door and I said to Joan, hey, Joan. Why don't I light a fire and you put some flowers in that vase that you bought today? Huh. Wow. <laughs> so I'm a songwriter. <laughs> I, w I, w I was off and running and our house was finished in about an hour and a half. I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to you play your love songs all night long. There's something really powerful about that, you know, I, I think about the songwriters that listen to this podcast, and there's a powerful message there about instead of searching for the profound words to understand that there is something, there can be something profound in simple terms and in simple images and just the things that are right in front of you. Yep. Ordinary moments. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We all have them. I'm just a songwriter. That's what I do with my ordinary moments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say that for you as a as a songwriter, is that the kind of thing? I mean, was our house like a, you know, un unusual bolt of lightning or is it frequent that you either say something or someone says something to you or you overhear a conversation at a restaurant or something? Uh, is, is that kind of a, a typical spark of inspiration, a, a line that someone says and you go, ah, there's there's something there? Yeah. 
I have I have to feel something first before I write. If something moves me enough to write, you know, whether it be anger or love or anything in between, um, I have to I have to feel something about it before I'll even attempt to write. When I'm when I know that I feel something, I then try and uh, you know do my research and make sure that I'm on the right track, and and that's when I write. You know, it starts from feelings. Yeah, yeah. If you hear something that moves you, do you kind of jot it down and then you set aside times to write and you kind of look back through your journal? Or are you the type of writer who says, oh, my gosh, I just heard this thing. Sorry, I got to go in the other room and, and go chase this now. I've done it both ways, kid. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've done it both ways. I've, I've, I've taken time and I've done it instantly. The same was true with a song I wrote called Just a Song Before I Go. That, that was written in, in less than an hour. That, and that was done on a challenge from a, a friend of mine in Hawaii who said, you know, you're supposed to be some big shot songwriter. I bet you can't write a song just before you go. Huh. Wow. <laughs> and I believe that song, which blows my mind. I just recently learned this. I believe that song was actually Crosby, Stills and Nash's first top 10 single on the Billboard pop chart. Yeah, it was it was the biggest single that we ever had, strangely yeah. enough. Yeah. But it, but it once again, an ordinary moment. So he said, I bet you can't write a song just before I go. I said, really? Just before I go? Right, okay. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Just a song before I go To whom it may concern Traveling twice the speed of sound It's easy to get burned When the shows were on ask you about the song Chicago which appeared on Crosby Stills and Nash's live album Four Way Street but also showed up on your first solo album and those albums were really just months apart and I'm curious if that was a decision because you're like hey these are two great versions of this song and, and you're thinking from a musical standpoint or was it more about this song has impact and I want it to be heard in both locations I wanted to uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, the the that it was as impactful as possible. I knew that it was a, a subject um, that that was out there, you know, that a lot of people have been thinking about. But uh, but I I really uh, I really liked uh, Chicago. I I, uh, I I I thought both my uh, my, my version on, on songs for beginners and the version on on four way street uh, are interesting versions of the same song. But uh, yeah, I wanted. I I knew that it would have uh, impact, and I wanted it to be uh, spread as wide as possible. In a land that's known as freedom, how can such a thing be fair? Won't you please come to Chicago for the help that we can bring? We can change the world. We are ready. Songs for Beginners record is very much like what we started off talking about, which is two sides of the same coin. You have, um, you know, songs like Chicago or, or Military Madness, which are commentary songs. They're, you know, observing and, and reporting on, on the culture. Uh, but then, you know, on the flip side, you have songs like Simple Man, um, which is very personal or, or Better Days, which is more um, you know, about uh, yeah. personal experience. Um, talk a bit about the inspiration for Better Days. I was in love with the, uh, a woman called Rita Coolidge at one point. Uh, she was an incredibly beautiful and very smart woman. Um, and uh, here's what happened. I, I'd, I'd invited her. Uh, we met her when, when uh, Crosby and I were doing the background vocals on uh, Love the One You're With uh, by Stephen. He'd cut the track in Olympic in, in, in London, and we were doing the vocals in Los Angeles. And part of the the vocals was Rita Coolidge. And... Uh, 
I, I, I loved her from the first moment I saw her. I was very attracted to Rita. And I invited her to come to a swap meet. And uh, she agreed. And so that was great. Except that Stephen called her and said that I was ill and I couldn't go. Could he take her? Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> so she spent a couple of weeks with Stephen trying to figure out that. And, uh, and that's when I wrote Better Days because... Uh, you're not where you want to be, but you're where you want to belong. So, you know, uh, yeah, so it, that was about Rita Coolidge, and Rita is, in fact, playing uh, piano on there, too, with me. Wow. I don't know whether you know it, but Rita wrote the piano changes in Layla. Really? I, don't know I, know, I, know, I know Jimmy Gordon, her, bo her boyfriend, said that he wrote it, but he didn't. He didn't play piano. Wow. It was Rita. And I wish she'd have had the royalties from, you know, 40 years of Layla. Wow, that's amazing. You know, we, we you know, you, you talk about these relationships and the the drama at times that, that ensued from the relationships. We as fans and listeners, I think we tend to look at legendary bands as, you know, you guys were musicians that happened to have relationships with one another. And yet what really was the case was you guys were human beings in relationship and music resulted. And and it's it's impossible to separate the fact that, that personal slights and things like that would happen in, in between. And it's it I always find that when we're sitting here talking, we're talking about your life, you know, in a way, and we're talking about it as if it's a highlight reel. But these these were actual moments, and songs just happened to live in between those moments. Yeah, like uh, my song "Wounded Bird." You know, I wrote that because Stephen was going through changes with Judy Collins, and I saw him going through changes, and I knew what those changes were. I've been in love before, you know, and uh, it was my song to him to to let him know that I was his friend and that I was there for him. Have you ever felt at times like uh, that you wish maybe you hadn't had to share all these things with the public, you know, because they are your personal stories and they get talked about and they get reviewed and they get criticized but but they're your life story. Or or is there something cathartic about having gotten them out and then letting them go? That's just what I do. I, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I, you know, I, I feel I'm rather good at what I do. I, I, I just wake up in the morning and get on with my life. And whatever happens to me, I write about it. And um, that it, it's very it's very simple. It, 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 it's not hard to explain at all. I, I get moved and I have to write because that's what I've been doing for the last 60 years. Yeah. I tell you this, if I'd have been a plumber in, for 60 years, I'd be fucking great as a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting comment, you know, because I think people, um, if you were a plumber, that is a skill. It's a trade. If you're a songwriter, you know, there's a lot of inspiration and mystery and magic to songwriting, but it is also a trade. It's also a craft. It's also something that you work on. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people sometimes don't recognize that, that there is a certain workmanlike uh, aspect of being a good songwriter. Great songs sometimes fall out of the sky in your lap, and then sometimes you really have to put in the, the sweat. Indeed. Yeah. There's a perfect example was Our House, that's kind of, and just a song, they just kind of fell off the off the line, you know, but something like Cathedral took me several years to get the words exactly right, because I realized, of course, how important religion, I'm, I'm not a fan myself of, of planned religion, but I do recognize the fact that it's very important in people's lives. And so I had to make sure that when I'm talking about people's religion and their relationship to Jesus Christ, you know, that I had to make sure I had every word right because huh. words are important and words are very powerful. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because that, you know, CSN's uh, third studio album was 
basically you had just a song before I go, which you mentioned a moment ago, you, you were able to like crank that one out in lightning speed and then cathedrals on that same record. And that's one where you, you know, really had to take the time and, and, you know, get it, get it right. So it's interesting how even on that one album in that one period, you have a representation of very much two different types of songwriting. Absolutely. That's a very smart observation. to the church and let me out of here too many people have lied in the name of christ for anyone to heed the call so many people have died in the name of christ that i can't believe it all now i'm standing on the grave of a soldier that died in 1799 and the day he died it was a birthday and i noticed it was mine and my head didn't know just who i was and i went spinning back in time and i am Looking ahead a bit to uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash's 1982 album, Daylight Again, we look at a song like Wasted on the Way, um, which is a great example of what we talked about before, the things that happen in interpersonal relationships becoming the context and inspiration for these songs. Um, that, that's a song that went to number nine on the Billboard pop chart, but it was born of your personal life and your personal interactions. Has that song uh, taken on any deeper resonance as, as time has gone on and you look at relationships in retrospect? Absolutely. I, 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 I very often open the show with it. Wow. And the, the, the reason is that, that, yes, we made a lot of interesting music in our lives, you know, in, in between the Hollies and between me and David and me, David and Stephen and me, David, Stephen and Neil. A, we, a lot of we made a lot of music. But you know what? We want more. Well, mm. I want more. When you play me a beautiful song, I want to know where the next one is. Because wow. if that's inside you, there must be other stuff inside you. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I, just, I just live my life and write what, what the hell happens to me. It, it's a very simple thing. You know, there's, there's writing songs and then there's producing songs. You know, there's going in the studio, there's bringing it to life, whether you're, you know, working with... Uh, an outside producer or doing something yourself, you know, the, the way that someone writes and conceives of a song and then the way the song ultimately ends up sounding, you know, the, those can be uh, sometimes related processes or they can be unrelated. Um, but I listened to a track uh, like the title track from your 1986 album, Innocent Eyes. And, you know, you can tell that record is made in the 80s. It sounds of its time you know there's a yes a, a yes production. it does unfortunately Sometimes productions uh, age well, and, and, and sometimes they don't. I wonder if there are songs of yours that you kind of look back and you go, oh, man, I, I wish I could pluck that one out of that time period and, and recast it in a, in a different way. Only certain words. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, ju just, just words I would change. I wouldn't change anything in any of my songs, but there are a couple of, a couple of words in a couple of songs, which I'm not going to tell you about, um, <laughs> that, I, that I wish I would have written. Yeah. differently but but there's nothing you can do you know you you write a song you get it produced it ends up on record and you have to let it go whatever it is there's nothing you can do once it's released yeah yeah uh, I want to talk about collaboration for a moment um, because the 1988 album American Dream which was the uh, fifth CSN studio album and, and the second with Neil um you know, other than Clear Blue Sky, which you wrote solo, the, the other songs that you contributed on that record, um, Don't Say Goodbye, Shadowland, and Soldiers of Peace, those are, are co-writes. And as we look at your career uh, as a whole, there are way, way more solo written songs than there are uh, collaborations. And I, I'm curious what your, uh, what your thoughts are, what your relationship is to the collaborative process in songwriting. I'm not crazy about it, frankly. Um, if I have 
some pretty words, you know, and then somebody writes back, you know, well, I think your pink pajamas look beautiful in the moonlight, you know. And, and, and no, 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 no. That's not what I meant, you know. So I, I've always been a little shy about about riding with other people, but I ha- I have obviously because what happened with something like Soldiers of Peace, that was a, uh, you know the beginning set of changes that John, Joe Vitale had and Craig mm. Gergi had, and while um, whilst we were writing that, there was a uh, I was watching television, you know. My TV was on, and it was a, a, a thing. I think that that uh, called Shoah, hmm. which was about uh, a, 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 about about uh, what happened to the Jews in in, in Germany. And uh, while that was going on, we started to write Soldiers of Peace. Oh. And uh, so there's an example of seeing something off to the side that affects what you're doing in the present. You know. You mentioned just kind of going back to a thought before. You mentioned that there were at times some words that you might go back and and change, and and I'm assuming that has to do with with your intent versus at times the way a song might have been received. Are there songs right. of yours that that have been sort of uh, universally misunderstood, or are, is there any song you can think of in particular? You're like, wow, people people didn't quite get that one. No, I I, I don't think like that. I, I once they're out there, there's nothing I can do about how people feel about it. There's nothing I can do about what they what what their critique is. There's nothing I can do about that. So yeah. why bother even thinking about it? Mm-hmm. I put out the song. I made the best record of it I could. I, I had it mastered the best way I could. And God bless it. It's out there now. There's nothing I can do. Well, listeners then, to they tend to take ownership of songs. And those songs, you know, you write a song about your house, but it becomes our house to that listener of as course. well then. Yeah, that's why I, that's why I wrote our house. I mean, everybody's got their house. Everybody's got their place where they feel safe and 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 warm. Uh, yeah, everybody has a house, right? I yeah. mean, ordinary moments. Of course, everybody has a house. Yeah, and the ability to write something that uh, y- you know, if I listen to your song and I resonate with it, and it sounds like my song, then you know you've done your job as a as a songwriter. You you've made something that's right, personal that's and exactly universal. right. Ken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the final CSNY album uh, was looking forward in 1999. And uh, I understand that a few years after that, that CSN was working on an album with uh, with Rick Rubin that ultimately kind of fell apart. Is that is that something that ever might see the light of day or was that completely abandoned? It was completely abandoned when uh, when Rick Rubin, whom I respect great, greatly uh, as a producer, um, kind of demanded that they would only. We wanted to do um, Norwegian Wood, and we mm-hmm. wanted to do Blackbird, both Beatles songs, of course. Right. And uh, Rick said, "No, no, no. There'll only be one Beatles song on this record." Huh. And he said that, unfortunately, to David Crosby. And uh, it was over from that moment on. Wow. Um, David said, nobody tells us what to fucking do. You know, who the fuck do you think you are telling us what we're going to put on our album? You know, it's not your album. It's our... Anyway, it, it, it ended right then. Wow. Wow. And it, will, it won't be revived, obviously. Right. And, and looking back on that, I, I can actually sort of see a point on both sides of it. You know, I could I could see where Rick was coming from, but I can certainly see where David was coming from to say, "Yeah, we're, we're legends." Yeah. you know, we've we've done this really, really well up to this point. Yeah, it could it could have been an interesting album, but it uh, it it wasn't. That's the way it is. <laughs> right. Um, well, I mentioned the the Innocent Eyes album a moment ago that came out in 1986, um, but your uh, Songs for Survivors, which was your next solo album, uh, didn't come out till 2002. And then the the next one, this path tonight, which is your most recent before the the latest, um, that was in 2016. So you have these kind of long gaps between uh, solo albums. Is there any particular strategy to that, or is it just you have a, a sort of gut sense of when it's time to to make the next statement, so to say? It all depends how many songs I have. Huh. If I if I if I've got you know ten finished songs in my head, I'm I'm making an album. If right. I only have two, I'm not making an album yet. Yeah. I'll wait until the songs come and then I'll collect them enough 
to be able to make an album. And that, that's why, uh, you know, and I was also very busy in, in that year, you know, um, uh, I, I put out 11 CDs, you know, there was, there was Stephen's box set and my box set and Crosby's box set and, and, and the CSN demos, uh, you know, it, it, I, there was a lot of music going on in my life at that time. So it yeah. wasn't all just me writing for the next record. Mm. And so I had to wait until songs actually came. And when I had enough, I would go into the studio. And this path tonight was a, was a decent album. Um, and that was what, seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Seven years ago, um, six or seven years ago. Uh, but I, I love this new record. I, I, I'm very, very happy with it. You know, one of the songs feels like home as kind of a, a country flavor. And, and that's one that you are, are credited as writing with um, Joe Vital. And I'm, yes, I'm curious about, you know, you talked a bit about collaboration and how that sometimes works and doesn't work for you. What is it about Joe that the two of you were able to work to, well together on that one? I think he was very. I mean, he was our drummer for thirty years, right? So he's seen he's seen everything. He he's seen yeah. the best of us and he's seen the worst of us. And uh, Joe, as a musician himself, is uh, uh, not only a great drummer, of course, but he was he's a great keyboard player and 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 tech tech uh, guy too. Um, and he had this set of changes that he had written about his wife, and uh, he hadn't quite finished it, and so I helped him finish it. talked about you know songs like stand up and golden idols from the new, new record which are um you know more of sort of the political cultural type of songs we talked about buddies back which is a fun song uh feels like home which is that great country flavored song paul just mentioned but i think in a lot of ways um the album's centerpiece is in a dream and that's an, an ambitious um song and and a little different uh i think for for you as a songwriter talk about that one in particular and how that came together Alan Price uh, from The Animals has always been a great piano player. And he had uh, written um, uh, uh, an album for a movie called Oh Lucky Man. And one of the pieces was this piano piece. Uh, and I, I've always loved it and always wondered why he hadn't put lyrics to this beautiful set of changes. And he hadn't. And so I did. And so I wrote to him and I said, you know, I, 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 I don't know whether you're going to like this, but I, I put words to, to, your, to your song. What, what do you think? And he loved it. And so I, I, was, I was home and free, you know, to be able to do that. But, yeah, that's, that's a beautiful piece. And the piece before it uh, uh, was written by Todd Caldwell, my keyboard player. He wrote all the string charts and, 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 the, uh, and the instrumental there before uh, In a Dream. And in a dream, that I believe that was recorded live as well with the string quartet. Is that true? Yes. All at once, I can feel you wanting me to be who I am. All at once, I can feel your heartaches fading into the past. Because the way you shine so brightly blinding all to the beauty of souls entwined time after time well in addition to the new record which is called now um, you're embarking on a tour called 60 years of songs and stories and that sort of refers to the first uh, to the debut of the hollies <laughs> 60 years ago um, which is wild to think you know about a, a six decade career as a songwriter and for someone who's been at it and has been a craftsman and an artist uh the amount of time that you had you know we have a lot of aspiring songwriters to listen who listen to this show so if you could fill in the blank 
for this sentence, whatever pops into your mind. To be a great songwriter, you have to follow your heart. Mm. All right. No hesitation. Your heart, no, your heart knows what's good. Your heart knows what's bad. This life is made up of choices. Do I turn left? Do I talk to him? It's choices that bring you to your life. And uh, I seem to have made the correct choices because here I am at 81 and we're still talking to you about music. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you heard it there, folks. Follow your heart directly from the mouth of the legendary craftsman and musician, Graham Nash. Graham, thank you so much for speaking with us today. The new album is called Now. We're really excited about it. And it has been truly an honor to talk to you today. Thank you very much, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 